Hello, this is Ray Brooks. Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm Dietrich Farr. Hey there, folks, this is Donald Trump of the American Songster, slapping the death with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Podcast. Yet another podcast that's featuring some of the great people I met in West Virginia at the Augusta Heritage Blues Swing and Old Timers Week. We're sitting down on the porch where most of the musicians and practitioners congregated for jam sessions, for workshops, for all sorts of events, just to talk about different things. And we got into a very intense and necessary conversation, as they say the hard conversations, on the way African Americans are portrayed in a stereotypical sense. We also got into a conversation on the difference in portrayal of some musical cultures in regards to others. For example, heavy and death metal in comparison to hip-hop. With all these brilliant and great minds sitting down together with me on the porch outside while a slew of great musicians play all around us, we had an opportunity to delve into things that we understood didn't understand and tried collectively as a small group come to some sort of understanding together. Take a listen. Everything else runs yeah. to is these 
Latino youth with guns killing each other and being brave. And that's what's very dumb. It's like they're reported and they're gone the next day. And yeah, they're white kids. And so, oh well, no big deal. And you know, I'm just so so it's something to think about when we have to retrain our minds to root the things that we say in truth. That's why I wanted to clarify that. Well, no, you're absolutely right. You did. It yeah, is, that's is good. not what we're assuming the things that we say. Oh, we're programmed to believe. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's there's no there's no shame in that. If you're a good student, you're gonna get an A on the materials that you've been presented. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you'll you'll be really good at being able to spit out the rhetoric that our society shoves down our throat every day. You know? And I Absolutely. say that as a black kid growing up in a very, very white community. Very, very white community. As my parents you grew became, up in it? Yeah. As my parents became more and more affluent, my sisters who didn't grow up in they grew up in a mixed neighborhood. I grew up in a white neighborhood. Went to school with white kids was in white classes all the time. And yet even two days ago, someone conflated my skin color with my social economic class. My father was a diplomat for Goodyear International. My mother was a banker who by the time she got ready to leave her job, they were ready to make her a computer programmer before we even had the word computer. Yeah. Okay. But two days ago, someone who seemed to be awake enough to understand the things I'm talking about in the course that I'm teaching actually conflated me with being low socioeconomic from a dangerous neighborhood. Wow. That happens to me all the time. All the time. I have a similar um, life story. Mm -hmm. My parents, when they first got married, were not very well off. My mother was going to school at night, working on her master's degree. Mm -hmm. And when they gained enough savings, they moved to a neighborhood that was supposed to be good, which mm -hmm. equated to we were the only black family there. Mm -hmm. And we were always looked at as being a possible threat or a possible problem because of who we were. Did you feel the eyes in the neighborhood yeah. around you? Yeah. yeah, but my parents also trained me not to care. You were able to do that? Yes. My father drummed it into me. He said, if you feel that you've been treated badly, if you feel that you've been treated unfairly, the very last reason I want you to attribute that to is your color. He said, make that be the last reason that pops into your head. Don't say, this happened to you because you are black. And this it's was like your woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that wasn't the thing that he was concerned about. He was concerned about me growing up with a chip on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. right. And he said, if you grow up with a chip on your shoulder, you're going to be weighed down like this, and you're going to be like that every day of your life. For the rest of your life, you're going to be a miserable, unhappy person, and that's not what we want for you. And so we were raised to really deal with people on a very individual, 
basis and not to make any assumptions about anyone based on anything other than that interaction. And if I have a bad interaction with you, it doesn't mean that I should run around and think, well, I'm going to avoid all black women. <laughs> or if I have a great interaction yeah. with you, it doesn't mean that I'm going to have a great interaction with you. Right. I might not. You might be good. You might not be my friend. You might not be my friend. You might be my friend. So it's very every situation is different. Every situation is different. That's how I was raised, but that is not the upbringing of many people. Unless we think that all black experience is the same and that it's homogeneous all across the board, my family never talked about race. There was no color in our little white neighborhood. We were the happy, safe token of the neighborhood. Nobody felt, we, you know, we were the, we were the, the nice example. Right. Okay. It's because of the kids. Right. And so because of that, and then look at the dichotomy that sets up even within your own family. Sure. My sisters, who were accustomed to hanging around with black kids, when they did, when we all ended up at the high school, they had black friends, but I was accustomed to hanging around with white kids. So my friends were white. And to this day, that's still an issue with us as Within the family. Within the family. Yeah. So, so many things are, are happening in the black culture that we don't even get to because the movies are saying we're just shooting on each other for drugs and mm -hmm. running around right. making babies. That's that's like all. Well, are you well, it's presented. Right. It's presented as if we're one-dimensional. Right. Right. Rather than a human being like everyone else that wants to love their wife, raise their children, have five children, one wife, thank God, and I hope to keep it that way, and, and uh, a mother who's a grandmother. Right, we, we have the same things, but these things are uh, one of my most favorite movies. I don't know if anybody has seen it here. Claudine, Claudine, yeah, Claudine, mm -hmm. Claudine, Diane Carroll, uh, James Earl Jones, mm -hmm. and a couple other people. It's 1973 74. This movie came out. It's a beautiful movie about love, family, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not a but, it's a realistic situation. Unfortunately, it's the only situation for a long time that we've seen in regards to African-American family. She was a mother with eight or nine kids, three different fathers, on welfare. This guy was ducking his other kids. That's the only kind of love story that we were getting for some time. Now, it's a good movie, but the undertones, one of the unfortunate realities is the issues that was being presented in this film were 100% real. Truth and comedy. Um, there's a scene where the welfare worker was coming to check her house and she had to hide the gifts that James Earl Jones gave her. She had to hide him because then they would have took away everything. Right? What, what do we think about this representation? Well, there's simplifications for every culture. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to clone every culture. You know, when they go out and say, okay, we're going to have the first Hispanic sitcom, 
it was coded like you wouldn't believe. Chico in the Mint. Oh, no, this is more more recent than that. Oh, okay. That was uh, the comic comedian. comedian. Um, yeah. George Lopez. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It right. Coded yeah. every which way, and and you go to, you know, depicting the white suburban family. Uh, usually the the wife is pretty smart. The dad dad's a total goofus. Mm -hmm. Right. You know. Right. They, they use this coding as a convenience, and you just have to try to make sure that you put up. And they code all the black sitcoms. They code all of, now they're getting away from it a little bit. What with, do you mean code? Sorry. They're using certain stereotypes oh, yeah. to, you know, like there's a Hispanic grandmother, mm -hmm. there's the, uh, Oh, you to know, me one of the biggest stereotypes in yeah. TV is the heavy set, good-natured black woman. Yeah. That, that she's always like cracking everybody up. That, I mean, to me, that's a huge stereotype. And, and it's it's sort of sad, but it makes us think. And you really have to fight it. It makes you, no matter who you are. No. You know, do the, do you know where terms. that that imagery comes from? No, I don't. Um, are you guys familiar with the term kinfolk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know where that sure. term comes from? Americans and Africans were so displaced and disenfranchised that it, it became a, I'll make it simple, when they were tearing families apart, selling people away, those left in those areas became kinfolk. They were family but not by blood. Extended family. So that stereotype was made to break down one of the strongest community members because everybody went to this woman's house for food, for shelter, advice, to, to advice medical attention, mm -hmm. medical attention on that. But the person they were going to was as varied as the various communities. Just because she served that particular role doesn't mean she was always look the same. Right, no, that's, that's my point. Yeah, okay. it, it, was, it, it was kind of like a um, way to deteriorate one of the oh, stronger the, images gotcha. of okay. our community. Okay. Same thing Made with... Made Yes. Same thing yes. like the, the church was at one time was like the pillar mm -hmm. of, I'm sure, every community, but speaking in regards to African Americans, this was the pillar of our community until after maybe the assassination of Martin Luther King, early 70s, it started, you know, and we all remember Jimmy Swagger and, and, and uh, who's the other guy? Baker? Yes. Yeah. Right? It, and then all of a sudden now we have these polarized um, 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 television evangelists yeah. that help deteriorate. There's no more store where I grew up in New York, Brooklyn, where I grew up, but I've been in every part of New York, even in Queens, and there was always storefront churches that um, catered to the neighborhood. All these churches are empty. Yes. And then what makes it worse is you would have visitors from these huge mega churches and they would call the small storefront churches and say, come down, make sure you bring everybody down there. And they get paid, they suck all the money from these people and they leave. Does anybody have thoughts on this? Or is that too... The big church. Well, the evangelical. Uh, that's happened in the suburbs, too. Yeah. 
so I've, yeah. se I've seen that, and, and even in the country, too, um, to some extent. Uh, but Portland, I, I lived in Portland, Oregon, it was happening there. Um, small churches were dwindling, and these big mega churches that were, I, you, it, like the, you go in and it's like a rock concert that yeah. playing. People, yeah. want, we went to one service, and the, I, I, the blink of the eye, the service was over. It was like people wanted to be entertained, not challenged. Right. And so it's, it's a whole different. Yeah, so that leads to a question. I'm sorry. Because that leads me to a question for you. Yeah. What yeah. she said. Yeah. It, it, that the people want to be entertained and not challenged. And that sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing and here as well in the cultural talks that you're trying to challenge people and not just be entertained by this beautiful music that you all just played together, correct? Right. Could you please talk about that? Well, I don't know what other art form has the pressure on that performance has. Like you're supposed to give somebody a good knee slap and good time while you're out. If you write a play, if you sing a song, if you do any performance-based thing that causes somebody to think deeply or to look at harder issues, you're more likely not to have a career <laughs> because people don't want to hear it. Every now and then there's somebody who will pop up and do it so well that nobody's going to ignore them. But if you go to any art gallery and you look at disturbing paintings on the wall, people will flock to see that and pay money to see that. To see a sculpture, oh yeah, if, it, if it's something that's just like thought provoking. But if you sing a song that's got, what did you say, murder, death, and death, murder, and mayhem? Death, murder, and mayhem in it, everybody wants to. I think there's something wrong with well, but I think there's there's two two types of songs. Mm -hmm. Death, murder, and mayhem songs that mm -hmm. celebrate the tearing down, you know, the system or going after the cops or whatever. There's also good death, murder, and mayhem songs that, you know, write about a tragedy or, you know, death of some of the new ones. If someone wrote about that little kid that was shot by the cops as they drove up because he was playing with a toy gun in the neighborhood, you know, that would be about death. That song needs to be written. And, you know, there was a small period of gangster rap that celebrated the life, and it sort of took over by media as this is the representation. You know, get the blame, wear the, um, and, and sort of celebrated that. But there's more, a lot more go-go, and, and, and I know about go-go in DC, that's, that's writing about injustice and in a positive way, you know, but, but if they wrote a song about, you know, a shooting in the neighborhood or a drive-by in the little, that could be positive. You know, you have to be... But to, to, to your point, I think that we as performers have a different charge than someone who has the visual arts right. or something. Yeah. There's a different standard held for us. 
because if you've just spent $150 on you and your date to go out and have a nice lobster dinner, and then you're going to go to the concert to hear somebody sing, you're more likely going to be looking for something that's going to make you feel good by the time you go home that night. And there, there are specific audiences that want to hear the difficult songs that want, to, but that's not what the pop side is. That's not where the masses are. That's not where the majority of U.S. attention is when it comes to hearing live music. But as a performer, if I may interject, occasionally when you're doing a set, you may have eight or ten songs you're going to do. You can slip something in there. I mean, I, I still go back to Phil Oaks and, uh, you know, some of the protest stuff back in the 60s. I can pull one of those songs out, and I've seen it done, not just by me, but by some other people and stuff. And it's, it's just like, sure, we're giving you a good time. And for like four minutes or five minutes in the set, you're going to make them think about something, you know? doing Bob Dylan song, whatever, you know, but I mean, some of those protest things are still relevant. And there's some other songs that go back way beyond that that are still relevant. And I just think, uh, you know, as an artist, you're doing a show, you may not have the opportunity to throw in something on this wall that's totally different from everything else, you know. But as a, as a performer, you can slip that in and get some dialogue going on. Yeah. So it's, I agree. It's yeah, it's just an easy way, well, it's not an easy way, but it's a way of introducing some of that stuff. So are we, ulti back to the are, are we ultimately saying, or are, are we all in agreement that if you have a message and you're trying to edify and uplift people, even if you're addressing the, 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 the woes of the community of the world, you're going to be a broke artist, is this what we're saying? <laughs> I'm a broke engineer. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't make, you can't decide that you're going to do this and make any money out of it. <laughs> you're not, you're not doing it for that reason. Absolutely, you know, that's the thing. And I think a lot of the music that, like that I play here, um, old time music is for dances. You know, it's not a whole lot of uh, vocals. You know, there are occasional songs, but for the most part, it's dance music. But what about ballads? Well, that's a whole different genre. But that. it's still. But when we say old time music, like the jam that was going on over there, those are dances. They're not doing songs. Now, what we did this afternoon with the jug band group, that was that was a vocal. Those were songs. They had you know words and stuff in them. But you know, I've played in old time groups for 30 years, off and on. Hardly anybody. Well, voices in it. Early blues is also dance music. Exactly. Even though exactly. it does yeah. vocal and, and message. Right, right. And, and what I wanted, I, I feel that I should clarify, because when I mentioned death, murder, and mayhem, yeah. the, and, and, and prison, <laughs> <laughs> that's the other topic. That's right. Those are the themes of the songs that are in our repertoire because we are presenting things from a historical standpoint. Yes. And most, if not all, of the songs that we present um, are based 
in true stories, true yeah. events. That's the cool When part. the levee breaks, the big flood, yeah. uh, Joliet Downs, Statesboro, all, all of yeah. these songs mm -hmm. speak to either a particular point in history or a particular Stagley. event that happened. Stagley, true story. All Lewis Collins, true story. Um, so that is the reason why we include these things in our repertoire. Because we are telling stories, we are telling stories that are true, and many of these stories are still relevant today. Some things really haven't changed. The, they have changed. I, I, I like to give an analogy that Corporate America is the new plantation. Mm. That's a completely different discussion. Um, Not necessarily. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I know. There are more recent, yeah. like Aragon Mill, about the mills closing. Yeah. So you know, and from that that tell a true story. Uh, you know, what's the song that uh, about uh, oh, oh, the tearing down the last freight train left or? Don't stop there anymore. Yeah, or yeah, there's a bunch of them. My yeah. great grandmother wrote that song. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, and well, actually, my great aunt. Um, John Prime, yeah. I was thinking of the song. But there are a lot of songs about the, the basically corporations for profit yeah. destroying their communities. There is. You know, and all the mining songs. You, you yeah. guys, you know. Play in a different context than the bands I play. You know, uh, we're playing uh, one. My lead singer, would, he, he's a preacher, but he won't sing uh, gospel. He won't sing any Christian songs. But, but we play in bars and we play on the streets. You know, farmers markets and things like that. And uh, every once in a while we'll do a message song, but you know, they don't. He certainly doesn't see his message in that portion. We, we try to make sure we don't sing any songs that perpetuate past untruths or you know, we don't sing any good old sunny south or anything like that. But it, it's, a, it's a different environment. So if you're singing in a bar, Late at night, you want people to dance or something. It'll be a little different. Yeah, but you have to have high energy songs yeah. that yeah. people can make if, if, if there's like dancing involved. The yeah. bar, bar music is a different set. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Same topics, just different choices. My one friend, she writes songs, and she said there's differences. Some people want to go out and entertain, she says she wants to go out and share something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are two, two very different things. Mm -hmm. it, it is. And then we also have to I'm happy that I brought up the bar, mm -hmm. right? Because in talking about the blues, you know, we speak a lot about, we spoke, this conversation started about uh, urban music and murder and music, but, but we cannot forget the raunchy songs of Ma Rainey. Oh, yeah. You can't forget Ma Rainey. That, that Howlin' Wolf made a song that he walks around with a 44 yes. on, on his shoulder, which he probably did. Gonna but that's not the down, point. going to buy me a 44. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we can't forget about the songs right. that we're, we're, we're talking about running out the back door to somebody's husband coming home. Sure. And these are not 
uh, full stories. They may be um, polarizing it or telling a narrative or something that they didn't go through, but these things happened. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, they were talking about real things back then. Yeah. Right. These guys Those songs songs. Are, are about life. Yeah, they are. And these same stories yeah. that are in song mm-hmm. didn't just happen in black communities. Oh, no, no. If you look at traditional country, it's full of the same things. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Well, see, some of the angels. What's that joke? If you played country record backwards, you get your dog back. And the crash goes. Isn't that common? But but. So you have the quote-unquote jump boogie or Chicago sound that was for the clubs mm-hmm. or the bars or, or, or the juke houses. Yep. And then you, you have the, the, the uh, folk style, country blues style, or, or that was not necessarily to, to have people like to get up and dance like, um, I can't believe, I can't believe uh, Jimmy 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 Duck Holmes. Okay, Jimmy Duck Holmes uh, said he owns uh, uh, the last remaining legitimate um, um, juke joint in Bentonia, Mississippi. I know that place. <laughs> What's that? Something monkey. No, Blue Front. Blue oh, Front. Okay. You might okay. be talking about is that Mr. Gibbs' place? Um, I've heard of the place that he's talking about, too. Yeah. I've heard of both of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jimmy Duck Holmes is, 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 is a Bentonia star player in the likes of Jack Owens and, and Skip James. But what he said to me is, even though he plays at his juke joint, mm-hmm. he's not coming to make you dance. He's coming to tell you the real blues. He yeah. has a story. And, and mm-hmm. So he, he, he likes to go in front of, of, of places like this, schools, different places, yeah. because he's not coming to get you drinking and stuff like this. Now, I, I read a thing. Yeah, this is along those lines. The old blues guys that we, more or less, you know, take, take their songs and, and love that stuff, um, Robert Johnson would not play Robert Johnson songs all night long in the juke. He couldn't make a living that way. Right. He had to play contemporary stuff. He had to play stuff that people could dance to. And then he'd interject these other songs that he had written, and they got recorded. But they didn't record his version of some Hank Williams song or something that was out there. But they were doing... I, I, did some reading on this. They were doing <coughs> contemporary stuff to keep the people there, to keep them listening, to keep them dancing. And to get money. It's the money. He couldn't make a living doing so, Robert Johnson songs all night long. Right. I understand that point. I understand that dance when you get But I think yeah. it's, um, I'm still kind of stuck on the comment you made earlier about old time being dance music. I think it's I think that's pretty broad brush for old well, time. They they I, I'm gonna ask that you let me finish saying what I'm saying first though. Because yeah. we've been yeah. all respectful of listening to one another. Mm-hmm. So what I what I am suggesting is that maybe old time needs a a, a a finer tuned distinction because one person's experience of old time is not someone else's. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know old time from the standpoint of of 
music for dancing because my old time experience is through the church and through ballads. And when I go to festivals like this, my whole concept of old time, as authentic as it is, mm -hmm. gets pushed to the back mm. in favor of what the group decides is old time. And, and yet there's ballads. Jillian Love, what she's doing. Listening to um, the music that I grew up hearing, because even though we were transplanted into suburbia, we, we brought with us from the Great Migration that whole Appalachian culture as long as we were in the house. We were outside of the house, we were assimilating. Inside the house, yes. we were in we were knowledge. You know? So that's my experience, and I can only speak to my experience, not to anybody else who was whoever else played or whatever old time band. My only experience is what I know growing up songs, we sang ballad songs, we sang songs that told a story, and I, I see that distinction we're making with the blues, but my suggestion is that it exists for old time as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. well where, where would you guys put Stephen Foster? I don't know who Stephen Foster He wrote, Oh Susanna, Hard Times, I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair, uh, uh, Angelina Baker, they wrote a bell, and they're not part of my reality, my musical reality. But I mean, where would they fit in as far as and he wrote most what of category would they fit in? He wrote a lot of the good old Sunny South type. Bill Billy? No, no. He wrote most of those songs for After. minstrel shows. Thank you. That's, That's okay. Sort, that was his. Genre. That's what he wrote for, and it was the popular music at the time. Okay, so it was the popular music. It was the popular music mm -hmm. at the time. So that's what he was writing for, was for pop music. Yeah. In Florida, was, I don't know how far it got, but they were trying to change the state song of Florida is uh, Swan River, way down upon Swan River. They're trying to change it because the lyrics are no longer okay. Oh yeah, a lot of Stephen Foster's lyrics yeah, have changed. But they were written in what, the eighteen twenties or forties? Something like that. He wrote my old Kentucky home. Yes he did. Our now stayed at that um, state park. His his statue of him playing uh, a banjo with a with a black man at his feet in gratitude. No. Thank yeah, where's this at is that's in, oh. what is that? In Pitt, is that someplace in Pennsylvania? That's got it's to go. It's on the list oh, yeah. of one of those statues to be yeah. taken down. But well, I, a lot of people don't want that to happen. I, I actually disagree with all the removal of these statues yeah. because there's a history behind them and people need to learn about that history and all they have to do is put up a plaque with the truth no way yeah. so people yeah. can actually learn why remove hero. them I that's agree. removing the history i know it's like erasing no, but that's the word what what i found out as part of the country is a lot of those statues were put up in the 1900s 
Yes, they were. You know, oh, they were yeah. By the daughters of the yeah, that's right. and things like that. That's a terror campaign. As, mm -hmm. as it came in. And it's what they stood for. I was talking to someone earlier, like, I read a book about the early blues. And New Orleans, you know, it, it had a huge slave trade later, but at one point, there was a huge. It was talking about, it was, it was a multiracial city. And I'm just repeating what was in the book. And after the Civil War, the powers that be came and actually put in all this. I mean, they made it almost like going back. They created this separate world that was then supported on. I mean, and so at one point, there was a huge middle class
I am a New Yorker. But inside our home, mm -hmm. we still held on to the traditions and the rituals and the things that they had brought with them from these places. If I went to see my grandmother, who moved all the way up Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks, that's how far north she ran. Uh, you can't get me further unless you go out of the country. <laughs> Um, Looking better every day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know. That's a that's a very good way to say that she where she ran. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I was involved in a, a project in Charlottesville where the uh, museum, of, National Museum of Peace and Justice, the Lynching Museum. Mm -hmm. they, in the well, Yeah. There's a. Yeah. Uh, I saw that. We were. We went. That, I'm sorry. We, we went. Yeah. To, um, you were on to Montgomery. That, you were on the pilgrimage that went with Charles. No, no. Oh. We just, okay. We just, so hang on, because I'm going yeah. to this. This is um, the soil that was collected there, and then that soil was then taken by a group of a delegation from Charlottesville to take to mm -hmm. Montgomery, where they you were, mm -hmm. and saw that um, to the museum, so that. His memory could be, the, that was a very, very hard thing to even experience. Yes. But the point that, I, that I'd like to make is that one of the organizers for that, I um, can't remember her name off the top of my head, she's a, a PhD, doing, doing all this work. She said one of the things that we failed to recognize about the Great Migration, we look at the pool the economic pull to bring people, but we never look at the push that drove people out of the South. Mm -hmm. That this was the largest movement of African Americans in the country. Six million moved. And as they're now looking at that story, it's the least documented movement of people across this continent. As they start to document those stories, they're finding that families moved because of some event that happened that out of fear people left. So we're looking at a refugee crisis. That's right. Not a migration, not an economic migration. Not an times. This was a, it was a refugee crisis. Right. When they're, now that the people who are researching this are actually looking at it. So I'm not only first generation northerner, I'm first generation Are we talking about until 50, what? The Great Migration. The Great Migration is documented to start from 1914 to 1972. Oh, okay. However, the initial migration started in the 1800s. Yeah. When, and that goes with the Underground Railroad and, and slaves escaping and migrating to, to Oklahoma and to Canada. And then, so, so there's actually, you can either say four migrations, or you can say three and three A, wow. right? Wow. And the, the second migration is actually one of the most important, important, because it was the 
second migration where we didn't just go northeast and northwest, but we went totally west. And in, in, in this, yes. That's right. Jack Dapper Blues Public Media is a listener-supported platform. For more information on funding, underwriting, and sponsorship opportunities, please email Lamont Jack Pearly at racefilmmusic.com or Denise Pearly at racefilmmusic.com. All rights reserved to Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation. <laughs>